Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. I'm excited and grateful to the Lord that we get to do this together this morning, and that we get to pray together and sing together and come alongside one another and, and of course, um, submit to God's Word together. Let's pray, and then we'll look more closely at our text for today. Triune God, we worship you for who you are. We thank you for revealing yourself. We know that you, you desire to make yourself known. We thank you that we have the privilege of receiving from you your written word. We thank you that we have the privilege of receiving from you saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you give us your spirit when we trust in him so that we can have assurance of our salvation and, and bearing fruit, growing in you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, you will help us to, to know you better, see you more rightly, so that we can respond appropriately to who you are and what you have for us. Lord, comfort the struggling. Lord, strengthen those who are suffering. Lord, convict the complacent. Give courage to us as we serve you. We thank you that you desire to do this for us and in us as we submit to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine this morning that you are preparing a research paper. I know, I know, most of you don't want to imagine preparing a research paper. Some of you are in a phase of life where that happens frequently. You don't have to imagine. But just hang with me. So in, in preparing and presenting a research paper, most of us are super familiar with what is the primary no-no to be avoided. Don't take somebody else's words and ideas as if they are your own without giving them credit. We call doing so plagiarism. But the opposite of, what, of that, the opposite of that would be equally true. Don't put words and ideas in somebody else's mouth that they didn't actually say or intend to say. I absolutely, this is not an understatement, I absolutely loathe this trend in modern mass media and social media. But that lack of intellectual integrity and honesty in such instances isn't really the point I'm making here. What I'm arguing this morning is that if, if even the world can recognize how seriously wrong it is to blame somebody else for our own bad ideas and twist their words out of context to claim they are saying something they are not, and even to misunderstand and misrepresent them, how much more serious to blame God's word for our own sinful inclinations, for our own bad ideas, to twist his words to say what they do not, and even to misunderstand and misrepresent them. Or at times we see people teaching God's word as we're warned about in the scripture for their own ends, for personal gain, greed, 
telling people what they want to hear in order to gain a following instead of gaining a following for Jesus. I would think that God will not take that lightly. So what does that have to do with Paul's evangelistic sermon in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13? Well, a lot, actually. Do the apostles, and should we, make sure that we are only saying what God intends to say from his word? Absolutely. Using Paul's example here in this evangelistic sermon, we can outline some simple basics for biblical interpretation, rightly handling the word of truth. Let's read it together again, this section that we're going back over, and I'll explain where our emphasis will be today further. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 32. And we, the apostle Paul says, speaking of himself and, and Barnabas, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, speaking again of, of the Israelites, by raising Jesus, so also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In verse 34, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed or justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Last week, we covered these same verses, plus going back to the beginning of the sermon, to show the pattern Paul uses in evangelism, and we apply that as a good pattern for us to follow in ourselves in our gospel proclamation. Now, that's what I believe to be the the most obvious, easiest thing for us to pl- apply in this context. So I tell you that, that Luke is showing us a pattern for their early evangelistic efforts. And so I tell you then when we see Paul give a sermon in the synagogue, we should follow Paul's example. But I painted myself in a corner last week because I told you that I would unfold these scriptural quotes more fully. And then I already covered what I thought was most helpful ap- application for us from Luke showing this pattern of evangelistic preaching. We should consider following this pattern in our own gospel proclamation. So now I'm left with the challenge of taking something that's highly intellectual and complex and nuanced in the way the apostles in the New Testament use Old Testament scriptures and bring that back to us today and say, here's something from the pattern that we can follow. So I landed on three foundational lenses for interpreting Scripture. What we say God means has roots in the original context. It hangs together with all of Scripture, and it must account for the Christocentric message of God's Word. First, I want you to see that the meaning Paul intends has roots in the original context. What we say God means must have 
roots in the original context. It would be difficult for us to imagine when we read the Apostle Paul preaching that Paul does not understand well the context of the passages he quotes. But in fairness, the apostles and the other New Testament authors do not always make obvious what the contextual connection is in their use of the Old Testament. However, as we've been saying as we study Acts, we are not the apostles. We, nor are we the New Testament authors who had unique, the unique role of the Spirit's inspiration to be writing Scripture. So I submit to you that in order for us to safeguard our interpretation, we see the apostles doing this, but we have to do it even more carefully. Our interpretation of a text, what it means and how to apply it should be contextually grounded. Again, as a rabbi well-trained in the Jewish scriptures, I would expect Paul to be quite comfortable understanding the original context of the passages that he alludes to or quotes or interprets. Paul quotes first from the second psalm. By the way, this is uniquely specific in all of the New Testament, in the quotations of the Old Testament scriptures, to say exactly where it comes from. They don't normally do that, but Paul does it here from the second psalm. And we'll, we know it's from our verse 7. We've numbered to give addresses to be able to find things. Now, the context of the psalm is a celebration of the supremacy of the Lord's anointed, a celebration of the supremacy of the Lord's anointed, and a confident declaration that God will vindicate this son, this king who is his representative on earth. Don't just take my word for it. Look with me at the passage. This is Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want to be accountable to this God or to his anointed. We don't want to submit. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Can they cast off his authority? Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the psalmist says. The Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled against those who won't submit to his authority. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let me repeat my summary for you of the context of this psalm. The psalm is a celebration of the supremacy of the Lord's anointed and a confident declaration that God will vindicate this son in the world, this king, this anointed one who is his representative on the earth. Therefore, people ought to take heed and respond rightly. When we think about it in these terms, it isn't hard to see how this royal psalm applies through David and his posterity 
to the one who would be the fulfillment of messianic promises. So whatever applies in some degree to to, to David and his son and those who follow after him, and we see as, as Paul continues to quote, whatever applies to Israel, the promises, the fulfillment of these promises, the greatest fruition is in Jesus Christ. And in case you don't already know this, the word Messiah comes from transliterating the Hebrew word for anointed, and the word Christ comes from translating anointed into Greek. I can tell you with certainty that for me, the the context then richly develops and deepens my understanding and deepens my appreciation for the meaning, even as it points to Christ. I want to encourage you that we must be contextual in our interpretation of a text. That's what we see Paul doing as we're trying to follow his argument. We're figuring out the context in which he is speaking to understand how he's using the scriptural quotes and how Paul is tying them together. He now also mentions Isaiah 55 verse 3, and he links that together with Psalm 1610. And that wouldn't be immediately obvious to us without knowing that Paul in his sermon is preaching this promise fulfillment motif that he's been driving at with this audience. So in verses 34 and 35, Paul connects the promise of the Messiah to the Davidic blessing promised to Israel, and this he shows in Isaiah 55 verse 3 is reinforced during their time of exile. And then he he ties that to another messianic psalm, Psalm 1610, that he says, foretold of the Holy One's resurrection. Now again, talking about the context, even briefly, Isaiah, from his vantage point, is, is prophesying a yet future judgment for Judah in what would be the Babylonian ca- captivity. And then in this part of his prophecy, he communicates to them that even though they're going to be judged by God and they're going to be um, under the Babylonian cap- captivity, there is yet hope and comfort for Israel, for God's people, even though they will be severely disciplined. Paul is using it to show that God's promise to David was reinforced at this juncture for Israel, and he said that the promise has found its fulfillment, the Davidic promise, the reinforced promise to Israel, has found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ in his coming, but not only in his coming, especially proven, vindicated by his resurrection. So Paul draws a connection here to Psalm 1610. The two texts are not only linked by the word holy, the Apostle Paul uses the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and in there the word holy is used. So he uses, it's linked by the word holy, Paul's employing an accepted rabbinical method in which he had been trained in the school of Hillel. They can tie the words together to make a point. So he does that with the word holy, but again, as I mentioned, what's tied together even more is the promise fulfillment paradigm that is the main theme of Paul's whole message. What's more, Paul isn't pulling this psalm out of context either. He's saying that the psalm, 16, is messianic. It's a better fit for the Messiah than for David or for David's son, Solomon. It's a, the best fit can only be the Messiah who has now come. Paul is saying that Jesus is the Christ, the fulfillment of God's promise to and through David's line, and that this truth is most clearly vindicated 
by his resurrection from the dead. That's the context of the Acts 13 sermon. What was promised to David and to the people of Israel is fulfilled in Jesus, where these texts apply more fully to the true anointed, the true king, the true son. One more example, Paul's last quotation that we read. Can a prophecy from Habakkuk that was intended to warn Israel about impending judgment under the Chaldeans be repurposed by Paul? It's Habakkuk talking to Israel about impending judgment under the Chaldeans, and Paul repurposes it to make a warning to his audience. Yes, in fact, the principle is applied to new heights. If they would be judged for not listening to God then, and only a righteous remnant would endure by faith, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, how much more would they be judged for ignoring the mighty work of God through his son, Jesus Christ? Don't you see what I mean about how the context only deepens, it enriches our understanding of the meaning and the purpose. And Paul can then sort of, the New Testament authors can repurpose those things to create a new warning, an even greater warning, like the author of Hebrews does. How can we expect to escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So we aim to be contextual in our interpretation, but that alone isn't enough. We aren't stopping only there. If we don't also consider the scriptures canonically as a whole, that's what the canon is, all of the Bible, 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament. If we don't uh, take the, the, the scriptures as a whole, that might lead to some erroneous conclusions. We must allow scripture to interpret scripture. So secondly, what we say God means must hang together with other scripture. It must complement. It can't contradict. As I said, for us, this is critical even as we listen to Paul quote a verse like Psalm 2-7. We immediately get hung up on how the unique Son of God can be begotten, don't we? If we try to take it in terms of the Son being created, then he isn't God. Or, or is this begottenness primarily about his incarnation or the inauguration of his public ministry? Remember, God saying and the, and the Spirit descending in a form like a dove, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. But is that the beginning of his begottenness? Or, or even in this great revelation of the resurrection, does his begottenness begin then? And proving that he's the Messiah, Lord, King? I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because of another passage in the Bible that quotes the same text with further explanation on the front end. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And there's so much richness in here. If you want to look at some of the other quotations that the author of Hebrews uses to make his point, read these later after verse 5. But just look with me. At verses 1 through 5, we'll, we'll go there in a second. Let me set this up. Even when we account for the fact that the context of the author of Hebrews is different, the conversation has its own environment and its own purpose, Scripture making statements on a subject protects us from thinking Paul might be saying something that he can't be saying. The author to the Hebrews begins with the supremacy of the Son 
and he will carry this theme throughout. The Son is supreme. Hebrews 1, 1 through 5. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, the author says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. Jesus can't be created, at least not in the, in the category of the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Who can be the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his, imprint of his nature? Except God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Who can do that? After making purification for sins, who can do that? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Can a mere man do that? Can a created being do that? Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And remember that his name is about who he is. For to which of the angels did God ever say, here it is, for you are my son, today I have begotten you, or I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. As I mentioned, the author doesn't stop there, but continues to quote other passages that reinforce the son's supremacy. Again, the context is superiority to even the angels, and by implication, obviously all men, not any created being. But what is clear is that the son already was the firstborn, the heir, the radiance of God's glory and the imprint of his nature. His coming, his incarnation, and his perfect obedience, and his sacrificial death, and especially his resurrection and exaltation, vindicated that all this was true about him. And he is the fulfillment of God's promise, and that he therefore is the only sufficient Savior. So these other events in his life announce and vindicate his identity, but they do not bring it about. In fact, this is the reason that Christian orthodoxy sought to protect against the teaching of Arius, which, which would have diminished the deity of Christ. And so Athanasius pushed back hard, pushed back hard against the teaching of Arius, and, and it led to discussions in the church about orthodoxy. God the Son was not begotten at the incarnation, nor at the outset of his public ministry, nor even at the resurrection. What these things do is make evident, reveal that he is the unique Son. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. This is a doctrine of Scripture that we call eternal generation. It's a helpful description of the Son's distinctiveness and unity within the Godhead in order to avoid the heresy of diminishing his deity. In an updated version of the Nicene Creed, which was A.D. 325, it was adapted at the Council of Constantinople, A.D. 381, to clarify slightly and then also to add clarity about the deity of the Holy Spirit. So I'd like to read to you just a portion of this, and I'm going to put up on the screen the two parts that specifically apply here. But let me, I'll begin reading at the beginning of it. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, 
and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Do you see how careful they are being in their language? Begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. The begottenness of Jesus Christ is described by them as of the same essence of the Father. And there's more. You can, you can look at this later on your own. I have it in the notes. You can find it on the website. I just want to reiterate, as Scott Swain summarizes, in this doctrine, the church confesses not simply that the second person of the Trinity is the one true and living God, but how he is the one true and living God. As the Son eternally begotten by the Father, who thereby shares the Father's self-same being, attributes, works, and worship. Now, I'll say this, too, in the context of the conversation that we're having. A doctrine, a summarizing statement of what the Bible teaches on a particular matter, does not trump the Scripture itself. So you know that. You know that when you hear me teach, and I'm, I'm doing everything that I can following these principles I'm telling you today... I'm doing everything that I can to say to you, as far as I can tell, with all the careful study that I've done, this is what God says. It's not about what Jeff thinks. It's not about what Jeff says. It's about what God says. And so you know that you must compare Scripture with Scripture and make sure that what I'm telling you is Scripture. And the case, that's also the case with doctrines. It's an effort to clarify what it is that the Scripture actually teaches. Sound doctrine is sound teaching of the Word of God, especially by allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, as we've said. Doctrinal statements arise from the need to distinguish truth from falsehood concerning what the Scripture actually teaches. What we're really saying in a doctrinal statement or confessional statements is that this is a helpful summary of, for example, what the Scripture says about Scripture, or what the Scripture says about God the Son, and so on. So, again, what have we seen so far? Our interpretation cannot be ripped out of context, which is the intent behind it at the time. But then we also have to take into account other Scripture, which means that progressive revelation from God, including from the old covenant to the new, not just to protect us from wrong conclusions, but also to draw connections. That's what we show Paul doing with promise to David, plus reinforced promise to Israel of that blessing still to come, plus the Messiah has come and done more than we anticipated, equals you must respond to Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. And he's coming back. So in our interpretation of Scripture, along with the context and the canon, we must also account for the center of Scripture being Christ. What we say God means must account for the Christocentric message of God's Word. This last one is the easiest for us to spot, even as we talked about this already. We've looked through this text. Sorry if you're just joining us this week. Uh, but this is an evangelistic message. It's in the New Testament. It's pretty plain to see in this text we're studying that 
Christ is obviously the fulfillment of promises and that faith in Christ is the goal Paul has for his audience. Not every text of Scripture is strictly evangelistic in this way, of course, as you well know from reading the Bible. So this does not mean that we slavishly try to somehow make every tiny detail of text be about Jesus. The first stone that David used to slay Goliath does not equate to the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We don't slavishly try to tie everything together unless there are patterns that we see indicated again, types, patterns, or specific prophecies. Or as we, say, as we admit about the New Testament, the New Testament authors will sometimes tell us things that we admit if we were in the shoes of most uh, rabbis, we wouldn't have figured it out. That's why Jesus told his disciples who would be his apostles, he told them specifically, when we get to the end of Luke, Luke 24, we discover that Jesus told them specifically how to understand the prophecies about himself, especially that which applied to his death and resurrection. Especially those things were hard for them to see and recognize that that was coming. They had the expectation of messianic fulfillment, which is a culmination that is still coming, but they missed what he was going to be doing this first time in his first coming. And so it needed to be shown to them and to us. So we stand in a different place and we find ourselves being even more careful with context, with canon, and even with our understanding of the Christocentricity of the Bible. What it does mean then is that we are mindful where everything is heading, through the cross and resurrection to a future culmination with Christ as King. Not every psalm that we're reading, right? We, Paul uses two psalms that he says are messianic, but not every psalm is messianic. But every psalm that you read has new depth or different dimension because of Christ. From where we sit in history, the sun has come. The sun has died. The sun rose again and ascended to the right hand of majesty. He gives us the Holy Spirit to those whom he makes his own through faith. And he is keeping us and changing us and using us until his return. I can't simply read the Psalms, even like Simeon, remember Simeon in the early chapters of Luke? He was awaiting, he waited for the consolation of Israel. Now Simeon can say that he saw the infant Messiah, but we read it like someone who knows the Christ has come, who has faith in the Christ, and who knows he is coming again. Another example is that not every instruction to Israel has an immediately apparent correlation to Christ. But we clearly cannot read them or understand them or decide to apply them or not apply them without deliberate consideration of the purpose and command of Christ in the new covenant, right? You can't, it's not like this is a pair of glasses that you can just take off and set aside. No, your vision has been corrected by faith in Christ. And this is how you view the Bible. So I'm trying, in, in 
recognizing that some of you study God's Word as much or maybe more than I do, maybe have more experience than I do. I want to say this in a, in a nuanced way. I don't want you to feel like you can't push back, especially with Scripture, right? But I want you to be encouraged to think about the seriousness of studying God's Word and understanding what it is that God says, and then to try to counsel one another and say, this is what God says. So you have to do so contextually. Don't just rip things out of their context. Some of you, especially if you've sort of grown up in a church like this, I mean, even as adults, I say I grew up, right, as an adult in a church that's very serious about faithfulness to God's word. God's word is inerrant, infallible, authoritative in every area of our lives. And if you've grown up in a church like this, it drives you bonkers when you read a Christian book that's just ripping t- texts out of context. And you're like, well, that's great that that comes from the Bible, but I don't think that that's what it meant there. I'm not sure that, that it means that anywhere in the Bible. Right? So you have your favorite athlete who wears, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me on his shoes, and I'm going, Steph Curry, you don't know what that means, bud. That's about contentment. So when you're suffering, you understand in good times and in bad. Christ is my sufficiency, right? That's what it means. In context, that's what it means. So we study God's word in context. We study God's word in the whole context of scripture, right? And we study God's word knowing that Jesus is the center of it. We can't take off that lens, really. But we have to be careful to do so, considering the place it's located in the canon, right? and so on. So let um, let me close with this this morning. Again, as I told you, I'm just trying to find some way with this kind of intellectual theme today to apply it to you. Are you striving to listen to what God says? Are you striving to listen to what God says? Yeah, we should interpret the scriptures contextually, canonically, Christologically. Here's the summary Understand the context because that context has bearing on a right interpretation. Understand that the scriptures are unified and that that has a bearing on right interpretation. Understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is the central theme of the scriptures. Therefore, Christology has bearing in some way on the meaning. I'm not trying to argue that this is like a simple formula that will make all interpretation easy. But I think I am arguing, even from Paul's example here, that wrestling with these factors in our interpretation will go a long way to keeping us on the right track. And let me say this about whether or not you are striving to listen to what God says. We wrestle with God's word, and picture picture Jacob. (laughs) We wrestle with God's word because we know it is God's revelation, and we know we must submit to his authority. We know we must submit to his authority. So I need to know, God, what is it that you're telling me about yourself and about how I must submit to you? Who is Jesus and how does he desire to use me? And so we wrestle and we strive and we come back to it and we look at it again from another angle and we have someone else challenge us and we say, that's right, I need to look at that again. I shouldn't say it exactly like that because that's not, that doesn't account for this. So with great effort, we strive to understand God's meaning in order that we submit 
to his intention. I challenge you to do that. We look at the Apostle Paul, and I'll just add these things, that Paul, Paul treats the Scriptures like they are the inerrant Word of God. He treats the Scriptures like they are true and authoritative, and therefore they're necessary for us, clear enough for us to comprehend and sufficient to communicate what we need to know about God's salvation and how we can live in submission to Him. The Scriptures are sufficient, clear, authoritative, necessary. It's only right that we should do the same. Let's wrestle with God's word because there he's revealing himself to us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. It's at times like these that we're reminded that we understand why the psalmist can say in several different places that I love your word, I love your law. Why would he love God's law, God's revelation? Because God, there you are telling us about yourself. We can know you. We can come towards you. And because of Jesus Christ, we can come towards you um, not in fear of wrath, but because Jesus took your wrath and our sin upon himself and by faith, he gives us your righteousness. We're able to come right into your presence and sit at your feet, God, and say, I know how much I need you, not only for the beginning of my salvation, but I know I need you for its completion. I need you to help me. I want to be the, the fellow heir with Jesus Christ that, that lives for you and that exudes you and reflects you in all times and in all ways, and yet I know that I'm struggling with my sin nature as well. God, help us to abide in you and to find our strength in you. And help us to see the value of your word. Not to think of it as something that we must do or some checklist, but to view your word as the place where you reveal yourself. And God, help us to be committed to not be lazy but to work hard to understand what it is that you are saying so that we can know you and we can help others know you. In Christ's name, amen.